I think 100% renewables is, is, is actually challenging from a technical perspective. From my perspective um, these days, I think of 80 to 90% renewables almost as a baseline. Meet Albert Chung. You may be familiar with his new energy outlook research for Bloomberg NEF. This is Net Zero, a podcast by the Florence School of Regulation about the energy transition and climate change. I am Joana Freitas, and in this series, I'm inviting myself into the minds of some truly insightful people with very different perspectives. We will be discussing what is happening across Europe, what are the challenges for utilities, what will be the benefits for the environment, and ultimately for citizens. We are joined by Albert Chung, Head of Global Analysis at Bloomberg NEF, to discuss if a future with 100% renewables is a myth or could be a reality. Albert, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So, do you think that uh, Europe can see a future where 100% renewables uh, is approachable, it's achievable? Um, and if not, what would be that more achievable number and by what year? I think 100% renewables is 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 actually challenging from a technical perspective so i think it will get near I and mean, it might not get all the way to 100 so from my perspective um these days i think of 80 to 90 percent renewables almost as a baseline and the reason i say it's a baseline is because at bnef we have an annual uh, report that we do called the new energy outlook um, and we essentially model the power sector out to 2050 and what we find generally each year is that in europe um, just by optimizing for a least cost power system, you can get to somewhere in the 80s, mid 80s of percentage of renewables uh, using wind, solar and, and uh, lithium ion battery storage. So, so for me, if, if the least cost system by 2040, 2050 is 80% renewables anyway, then pushing on to 90, 95% by adding cost, you know, you might get very close to 100 um, however, to really get to 100 now, you, that's a real challenge because you've got to tackle your seasonal storage problem. You've got to have your backup and so on. And, and the costs start to escalate at that point. Um, so I think I think Europe can get very close, but probably not all the way to 100 percent with one exception. And that's in regions where there's a lot of hydro resource. I think the hydro can be the backup um, for renewables to get to 100 percent. So what do you think needs to happen for Europe to reach the, the, that threshold of 80 to 90% renewables? Who are the key actors that need to deliver that change? And what are the main obstacles that you see to achieving those? Um, so there are um, a lot of obstacles and it's a really long road to get to those sorts of high penetrations. We sit here, we do our modeling. It's so easy to put it in a model and say this is going to happen. Um, but you're talking about massive investments in new infrastructure, in renewable generation, in storage, in demand-side management, all, all of these new, um, you know, new forms of, of power system technology. Um, so I think one one thing that will will, will be needed is a, is a very clear, stable regulatory framework um, for investments into renewables, um, and and that's kind of a, a an effort from from the sort of government perspective, from from the world of policy, to really make that happen. Um, I think that there'll be a lot of focus needed on the grid. Um, and I think of this both as sort of the big grid and the little grid. So on the big grid side, um, it's likely that we'll, be, we'll need more um, transmission interconnections between countries. It's likely that we'll need greater transmission investment within countries to connect uh, renewables to demand centers. 
And in terms of little grid, the distribution system is also going, going to have to adapt to greater distributed energy, whether it's rooftop PV, storage, um, electric vehicles, and so on. Um, and then finally, to get to you know 100% renewables, that means 0% fossil, right? So, so that is also a huge challenge because then you're talking about a, a real fossil fuel transition for companies and jobs and so on, um, which is going to need a huge amount of political courage. Um, and all of this is is a sort of huge collaborative effort between between government, between energy companies, between the investment community. Um, none of it will be will be easy. So I think it's a long a long road ahead. So even though there are studies that estimate that the expansion of renewables will increase overall employment, there has been significant resistance to the decommissioning of coal fired plants uh, in places like Germany because of the jobs that will be lost in that industry. In your view, what are the main macroeconomic implications of decarbonization? There are a number of recent studies that have been put out looking at the macroeconomic um, uh, implications of actually a full decarbonization of the economy, not just the power sector. Um, so the Committee on Climate Change in the UK said that to get to net zero economy-wide in the UK would cost 1% to 2% of GDP by 2050. Um, the Energy Transitions Commission had a report looking at the hard-to-abate sectors so industry, um, shipping, aviation, um, and it said that globally to decarbonize these sectors uh, would cost, uh, I believe it was half a percent of GDP. So these numbers are, are incredibly encouraging, incredibly actually um, energizing, because it's saying that we can get to, to net zero economy-wide, really at a relatively low cost uh, on a macro perspective. Now, of course, the key challenge is how will those costs be distributed? So in every transition, there are winners and losers. Um, I think the point that the real challenge here is that for those industries that will be most heavily impacted, whether it's the coal industry, whether it's, for example, the increased production costs of turning a steel plant into a zero carbon steel plant, um, these are industries that will be negatively impacted in some way and that, you know, the costs will be concentrated in certain pockets um, that will have, you know, knock on impacts on employment in those sectors. Um, so I, I think that the, one of the biggest challenges in the whole energy transition will be to understand those sectors that will be impacted the most, to understand the jobs impact, and then to find out um, where the opportunities will be in terms of jobs retraining and skills, um, skills retraining for workers, um, to, to find opportunities in the new energy economy. Clearly, you know, there are opportunities in the renewable sectors, in new technologies, um, and we need to find a way to match those opportunities with, with the risks and, and, and the sort of downsides that we've identified. Mm -hmm. um, coming back to uh, the path towards um, near 100% renewables, what do you foresee as the role for subsidies and for which uh, sources? I think we should stop talking about subsidies for renewable energy um, because, you know, everywhere in the world we're starting to see that wind and solar are the cheapest forms of power generation um, and that's, you know, the, in the future they'll be even cheaper. So it's not like 10 years ago when if you wanted to build renewable energy, you had to throw money at it. The governments would have to throw money to make up the difference between the cost and the value of, of this asset. Um, today, we're in a world where renewables is cheap. So I actually think what we need to start talking about um, probably is two things. One is market design, um, because clearly the way power markets operate in a, in a um, highly renewable world will be very, very different. And wholesale power prices will be heavily impacted, which means that we need to think about, you know, what's the correct remuneration structure to pay for renewables and 
frankly, to pay for flexibility, to pay for storage, all of these things, these things I think need to be worked out. Um, and then I, I think secondly, um, rather than talking about subsidies for renewables, is again going back to this point about fossil fuel retirement and saying if we want to remove the coal and you know in future also potentially remove natural gas from from our grid, how do we do that in a way that uh, is um, is fair and just to the companies and the investors and also the workers that are involved in those sectors? Let's talk a little bit about uh, decarbonization targets. Now, different European countries have had varying degrees of success in achieving their 2020 renewables targets, and they are also uh, having very different levels of ambition for 2030. For example, Austria has set a national target of 100%. Sweden, Portugal, and Denmark are at 80% or more. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have Belgium, France, and Poland that are 40% or less. Can you tell us a little bit about what explains these differences and what are the different paths that these countries are on? The first point is that energy transition is a very specific thing for every country and no two countries will have the same energy transition. Um, I mean, there are so many different examples. You know, Germany was very much the leader in the beginning and actually through subsidizing so heavily as, as it did, you know, for example, the solar industry helped set the rest of the world on a path towards decarbonization. Um, but then later changed its focus away from renewables and towards transitioning away from nuclear. So, you know, it's a very different story from, say, the UK, where, um, you know, in the UK where I live, um, we have the Climate Change Act, which came in uh, about 10, 11 years ago, and set carbon budgets, five-year carbon budgets for the government to have to meet in, in the future. Um, and that really focused minds on essentially on getting rid of coal. So that's why the, the UK has been, you know, first of all, a leader in offshore wind, but also now will be coal free um, by 2025. And actually, we, we just had the first two week run on the Great Britain national grid with no coal at all uh, since the 1880s. Um, and you can contrast that with countries like France, which should come at it from a, from a perspective of, you know, France already has a, a very low carbon power grid that's largely nuclear powered. So the drive towards renewables um, is a very different challenge for them. It's a question of how quickly can, should, should we be retiring nuclear and building renewables. Um, Poland, where there's a lot of cheap coal, has a very different set of conversations about energy transition. So I would say that the, the different levels of ambition across different European countries is really, a, a, it's really a, a, a symptom of the different narratives, the different stories of energy transition that are playing out in those countries. Mm -hmm. And um, so far, the member states of the EU have been allowed to set their own uh, decarbonization targets for 2030 on a voluntary basis. Although, um, you know, if the aggregate number is not uh, what it's supposed to be, the European Commission can propose a reinforcement of targets by 2023. Um, do you think that a system that is reliant on voluntary targets, on goodwill, uh, will be enough to achieve the ambition that the European Commission has set out, which is to lead renewable integration? I think it has to be. Um, I think that we, um, in Europe, we are lucky to, to live in democratic states where the people still rule at the end of the day. Um, and it's people who live in individual member states who, who rule. And so I think that the, um, I think that the, the voluntary mechanisms and countries um, uh, setting their own goals and those governments being... Um, uh, working ultimately for their citizens 
is the way that the energy transition will have to happen. And um, I think, by the way, you know, for the 2020 targets, which which are binding and, and do have penalties, I think there are there are really um, interesting questions around whether the European Commission will actually, you know, have the stomach to impose those penalties on countries which miss their 2020 targets, because I think there's now this greater understanding that um, that ultimately the energy transition for each country is an individual question. So I think the European Commission um, has a huge role to play in terms of showing leadership, um, in terms of educating. I think there are a lot of policymakers who still don't don't know that renewables are so cheap and don't understand the opportunities there. Um, but I, I'm not sure that the sort of um, if you don't meet your targets, we will find you mechanism is, is going to be particularly fruitful. I think the voluntary mechanism is probably the way forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we f- think of ourselves in 2050 in a system that is 90% renewables, what are the key challenges of an energy system that has so much renewables in its energy mix? That energy system that's 90% renewables in 2050 is going to operate so differently from, from the one that we have today. First of all, you'll need massive amounts of flexibility in the power system. Um, you, you'll need to be able to provide, um, uh, you know, um, a back, backup capacity for times when the, you know the wind wind isn't blowing and sun isn't shining. You'll need all of the all of the services that TSOs contract today. You know, frequency regulation, spinning reserves, black star. All of these things will have to be provided um, in a in a zero carbon way. Um, and and that flexibility um, is going to need to come from a variety of sources, whether it's storage, whether it's hydro, whether it's interconnection. Whether it's still some, you know, peaking gas or even, you know, renewable gas, um, and that's just fundamentally a different, a different set of challenges than than what we have today. I also think that from a system operation perspective, there'll need to be a lot more collaboration um, between TSOs and other TSOs, neighbouring TSOs, because I think the question of balancing the grid will become a much bigger question across European member states, um, and between TSOs and DSOs, because a lot of the the, the assets that we're talking about, renewable storage, demand, electric vehicles, maybe heat pumps, all of these things, a lot of them will be connected at the distribution level. A lot of the flexibility that, that we'll need to manage the system will, will be needed at the distribution level. Um, and so this, this sort of the overall system between the distribution and transmission um, will need to be a lot better coordinated to manage um, all, all, all of those different assets. So to close our interview, I'd just like to ask you some rapid-fire questions, which you can just answer <laughs> in one or two words or take a wild guess. Okay, okay, this will be fun. <laughs> so here we go. Zero Carbon Europe by 2050. Myth or reality? Oh, um, almost reality. Almost reality, but maybe not zero, but low carbon, yes. The future of storage, batteries or power to gas? Batteries. <laughs> <laughs> what year will see the last internal combustion engine vehicle sold in Europe? The last internal combustion engine. Okay. The last one, maybe 2050. What will be the percentage of power generated by prosumers by 2050? Mm, probably um, maybe less than you'd think. I reckon maybe uh, 15%. The main challenge for utilities in the next decade is? 
I would say um, I have two. So one is um, creating value in a very competitive and uncertain transition. And the other is engaging customers. And finally, do you believe that the Paris Agreement goal of keeping the increase in global average temperature to well below two degrees above pre-industrial levels will be attained? And if yes, by what date? Um, this is a huge question. <laughs> um, on current trend, no. On current trend, I think most experts would say we're on track for three plus, more than three degrees of warming. Um, but when we look at the tipping points that are coming in terms of the possibilities around um, re renewables, around electric vehicles, around greater electrification of the economy, and new technologies like hydrogen that are coming down the road, um, it's possible. It's possible, and I think we have to remain optimistic that it's possible, and we have to work towards it. Albert, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Next time on Net Zero, we see more and more liberalisation, which uh, we would expect would result in more competition and better services and lower prices for consumers. Yet, we don't see that in uh, every country. Thank you for listening to this episode of Net Zero. If you like us, you can subscribe to our Florence School of Regulation podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and sign up to our newsletter.